Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. This week, we're going to be doing a classic records episode. We're welcoming back John Wiedermorn. He was on the show a few weeks ago to talk about his most recent book, Raisin' Hell. Shortly after that episode, I was involved in an event that took place at the Strand in New York City. At this event, we read passages from the book, and I got a chance to meet Alex Skolnick, one of my guitar heroes. So anyway, John and I are going to be talking about Judas Priest's classic record, Hellbent for Leather. So, John, I wanted to thank you for inviting me uh, about a month ago at this point to your launch event for the book Raising Hell. That was a lot of fun. Cool. Glad you liked it. And I was uh, glad to have you there. Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a trip, man. I mean, Alex Skolnick is uh, one of my guitar idols, and it was uh, really cool to be up there on our, in our little get together. I felt like I was part of this like legitimate uh, literary event. It was kind of cool. Sort of metal at the strand. <laughs> that that room is pretty pretty amazing, really. There's like all these you know really old books, and it was just cool, you know. Yeah, Alex is a super nice guy. He's just so so cool. It's funny. My my you know wife was talking to him before the show, and she's not totally metal. She doesn't know Testament. She's like, he doesn't look like he's in a metal band. I'm like, really? He's got, I mean, he's got long hair and he's got a silver streak. She's like, oh, but he's so nice and he's so articulate. And he's it's like, okay. She's like, can I see a video? And I put on a, <laughs> uh, a live tape that you see, you know, Chuck Bill like screaming his head off and Alex is like doing the, the headbanging thing. She's like, oh, wow. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Some context, but, uh, I guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So where are we at with the book? I mean, you, you know, it's out, you you mentioned some uh, you you did some more prom- you know, promotional uh, sort of stuff and uh, the audio book like where where are we at with all this stuff? Well, yeah, I mean timing is real good. Um, I did a a, a reading in uh, my neighborhood uh, in Montclair, New Jersey, and uh, it was at this place called Wachong Booksellers. And there's uh, a local club. It's kind of an underground venue called the Meat Locker. It's yeah, below a French yeah. restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Well, the guy who owns the place, I'd met him before, but he came to the reading and uh, he really liked it. He's like, dude, would you want to do a reading before one of the shows at the Meat Locker? And I'm like, hell yeah, that'd be awesome. And then I looked at, uh, you know, most of their stuff is a little bit uh, uh, underground or, or, or culty because some of, you know, if uh, some huge band comes, they're going to play uh, a bigger venue or, or, or dingbats and not that many bands come through here if they're going to play New York. But then I noticed that the Obsessed and uh, Today is the Day are playing there. Oh, wow. I was like, holy crap. Is there any way I could open this? And he's like, yeah, let me see what I can do. Yeah. And the audiobook came out yesterday. So that's available on audible.com and I guess other audiobook places. Did you read that yourself or do you have someone else read it? No, no. They hired this guy. It's, yeah. it's funny because um, I, you know, I had no idea who they were going to get to do it. They just asked my permission. I'm like, yeah, of course. And it's like the, my first book that's been turned into an audio book. Well, no, I guess Scott Ian's was, but that's Scott Ian's book, not not mine. Um, but uh, 
I looked at the guy, the name of the guy who read it. It doesn't doesn't come to mind right now, but um, on his his bio, it's like he's he's uh, done Trent Lott's book, you know, the politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's done like uh, what your dog thinks about you. Uh, he's done like all these medical books and science books. I'm like, well, this is a change of pace for the dude. So uh, I can't wait to hear it. So you and I are getting together to talk about Judas Priest's classic record, Hellbent for Leather. And uh, that's uh, one of my favorite records by them. I have several favorite records by Judas Priest, as I'm sure you do. Sure. And, uh, you know, they're definitely one of the iconic hard rock slash heavy metal bands, like a band that actually helped define heavy metal along with Black Sabbath, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in my mind, I think uh, Black Sabbath really defined it without giving it a name, but they gave it a sound and an attitude um there'd been other heavy bands but no one had come along yet who sounded quite like sabbath and uh they were from the same town priest and sabbath and, and they knew each other and uh judas priest was really just a couple years behind sabbath and and at first they weren't the same kind of band that they that they evolved into i mean they didn't sound like sabbath but they were more of i guess a rock blues metal band but then you know, they did sin after sin and stay in class, and they started to like find that this new wave of British heavy metal almost niche uh, before that that uh, subgenre was was coined. I think all those bands, you know, Maiden, Saxon, um, Witchfind, uh, Witchfinder General, all those uh, groups, Raven, they owe a lot to to, uh, to Priest. Yeah, I think Priest also. I mean, another thing you can attribute to them is just their 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 influence too. I mean, you, you know, I, I always thought that the new wave of British heavy metal was like pretty much disciples of the Judas Priest sound, really, you know, primarily. Yeah. And then you know later on, like the more like bands like Pantera, you know, are, are like, you know, I, I know for a fact that Phil is a huge uh, you know fan of Rob Halford's, and he was a huge influence on his vocal style. Yeah, yeah, he said he, he used to stand up on his bed and uh, scream priest uh, priest lyrics, you know, from the front of the album to the back. And uh, I didn't know, like, if you listen to that that album Power Metal that he's on before Pantera got super heavy and punk influenced, um, it's very priesty and, and he's really singing. Like, he's definitely doing the uh, the Halford on, on a lot of the parts. I guess even uh, Cowboys from Hell has some has some kind of Halfordy shrieks. You know, I was going to bring up that power metal record because, uh, you know, like before I heard it, like years ago, people were like, oh, that's that's like their glam metal, like clock, cock rock album. But then I tracked down a copy of it and I, I actually like that record a lot. I don't think it's, uh, there's nothing soft about it, really. It's a, it's a hard rocking, very priest record, in my opinion, you know. Yeah. Before that, you know, Pantera, I guess, did, it was two or three self-released albums they were just teenagers and they just really wanted to sound like uh, a van halen kiss and and that's really what they did uh dime sounded a ton like eddie and uh, they had a singer who he was good but he you know he didn't hit the caliber of, of of a phil anselmo um and then when phil came in that band just totally found its legs and even even though power metal was great you know he pushed them i think because he was so into hardcore and and uh thrash metal and 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 they were discovering metallica anyway but the the combination was perfect to lead them towards uh that sound 
So before we get into uh, talking about uh, the record, uh, the Hellbent for Leather record, I want to just go through some factual information here. Uh, it's the fifth studio record, originally called Killing Machine, and that was uh, the European title for the record. It was changed in the United States uh, due to uh, a shooting that happened in San Diego. And uh, sort of, uh, it's funny because a lot of that stuff, you, f- you think of the late 90s onward school shootings, but I guess back in the late 70s, there were some school shootings as well. The uh, release date was October 9th, 1978 on Columbia Records. Uh, the length of record is 35 minutes and six seconds. And uh, that's something that on these episodes, we always talk about the length of these older records, how back then, like 35 minutes was a full length. And now, uh, you know, sometimes EPs are exceed the 35 minute uh, timeline timeline. Yeah. If you're not 70 minutes on a, on a full length, you're, you're missing a track or two. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, we, we released in tombs that is released an EP that was over 35 minutes long. And, uh, <laughs> it's like longer than some full lengths from the seventies. Well, all the Beatles albums were under 30 minutes, right? Yeah. Weren't they? Except for, except for the white album, which is a double. double and then, record, uh, yeah. And, and uh, of course, Rain and Blood, uh, that was their excuse for putting out an album under 30 minutes long. <laughs> but they said, you know, Slayer said everything it needed to say with that album in, in 29 minutes or however long it uh, it was. It feels longer than that when you actually listen to it. I think just the, the visceral like impa- impact of that record makes it feel like a longer you know piece, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a real bludgeon fest. It's like by the end of it, you kind of need to take a breath before putting it back on again. <laughs> Personnel on this record, we had Rob Halford, of course, on vocals, KK Downing guitar, Glenn Tipton guitar, and keyboards on the song Before Dawn, Ian Hill on bass, and Les Binks on drums. And this would be his final record with uh, with Priest. Uh, production information, August to September, the record was recorded at Utopia Studios and CBS Studios. Uh, the engineers were James Guthrie, assistant engineers Damian Cor- Corner. Andrew Jackson, Kevin Dallimore, Andrew Clark. Cover was by Ross Law, Zabo, and uh, band photography was Bob Ellsdale. Track listing, side one. What This is like a great way to start a record off, is the, the track Delivering the Goods. We got Rock Fever, Evening Star, the title track Hellbent for Leather. Well, at least in, in the United States, that was the title track. Take on the World. Side two starts off with Burning Up, Green Man Alishi, Killing Machine, the uh, European and UK title track, Running Wild, Before the Dawn, and Evil Fantasies. Now, when I first heard this record, uh, I didn't know that Green Man Alishi was actually a Fleetwood Mac cover. Right. No, I didn't know either until uh, until I checked out the credits. And... uh... I thought that was a pretty pretty cool ballsy cover to do because by that point they were a, a solid metal band, so to uh, to choose a cover from you know a band like Fleetwood Mac and to do ju- it justice the way they did it, um, you know, with that riff is just uh, really cool. I heard the first time I heard Green Green Man Alishi was actually on uh, Unleashed in the East. I remember I got that cassette for uh, Christmas one year, and. Um, so that has that track on there too. And then later when I got Hellbent for Leather, I realized that was an album track. And uh, 
And I, I all this time thought it was uh, not all this time, but for years I thought it was one of their original songs. And the Fleetwood Mac version of it, the original, it, it's actually, um, you know, when you think of Fleetwood Mac, it was it was the early Fleetwood Mac, the more blues rock version of the band, as opposed to uh, the equally cool, but you know, uh, Lindsey Buckingham more radio-friendly version of the band with the female singing and all that kind of stuff. Right, it was the Peter Green era. Yeah, and uh, it had this kind of... It was a, It actually sounded more like a like a doomier version of the song. It's like slower and... I don't know. And Priest gave it that trademark chug and, uh, you know, definitely uh, made it fit with their, with their sound and with the rest of their set. Uh, this record uh, in 79 uh, hit 128 on the Billboard, and it ended up becoming certified a certified gold record. And uh, also, and I think uh, you and I spoke about this briefly, this is like the first record where priests started getting into their uh, trademarked leather look, the biker kind of, you know, leather jacket studs kind of vibe. Right. Yeah, they would uh, take the uh, Halford would get on the motorcycle and ride it out. Uh, it, it started doing it with to the song Tyrant, but then then Hellbent for Leather became the uh, trademark track where he would ride the Harley around the stage. In two thousand one, there was uh, a reissue. Uh, I think I'm not sure if there's any other notable reissues, but this had some extra tracks on it. It had uh, Fight for Your Life, that was recorded during the '82 Screaming for Vengeance tour. I'm sorry, the 82 Screaming for Vengeance Sessions, and then uh, Riding on the Wind, which was a live track at the Us Festival in 83 out in uh, Devore, California. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, there was uh, hearing about the Us Festival and thinking that it was like the coolest thing in the world because there was like this Jimmy Page, uh, Robert Plant sort of Led Zeppelin thing going on at the Us Festival. And, uh, you know, being obviously a young kid, like it was definitely not on the table to go actually go to something like that. Yeah, pretty much one day was devoted to uh, hard rock and metal. So, you know, you had uh, the Scorpions and you had Priest and and um, uh, who, who else played it? Uh, I don't think Metallica played it, did they? No, that would have been no, that was a little too early in their career. Ozzy played it uh, and uh, it was definitely... I think a, a forebearer of what what Ozfest was to become. Yeah, I want to say that I think Motley Crue might have been on the Oz Festival. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. And Quiet Riot and and Triumph. <laughs> oh, Triumph! You know that's a band that not a lot of people talk about, but I think are actually pretty awesome. I mean, their first couple of records I thought were really cool. Yeah, I liked like their first five records, I think, and then they got really commercial. Yeah. Uh, but it was like them and Rush in the really early days were holding the mantle for the Canadian power trios. Yeah, Rick, Rick Emmett was uh, the, the sort of shred guitar player in that band. And uh, for whatever, I mean, they, they just weren't writing the same level of songs that Rush was. I mean, Rush had the whole conceptual thing behind what they were doing too. And, you know, Neil Peart and the genius, the late, the late great Neil Peart and his, all of his Oof. genius and forming that band's aesthetic. You know, Triumph, yep. Triumph was just like a solid rock band, but they were they were still pretty rad, I thought. I'd agree. Yeah. 
So you're. Do you um, think this album should have been called? Uh, I mean, I think it works better being called Hellbent for Leather than Killing Machine. I kind of didn't know it was called Killing Machine until after I bought it, but I always, I always thought of it as a real, you know, that should be the title track, that should be the name of the album, especially with the artwork. I think that uh, Hellbent for Leather, and maybe it's because for the last like, you know, forty years of my life, I uh, know this as Hellbent for Leather. And uh, it wasn't until I was like into my adult life that I found out about the, the title of Killing Machine. It, to me, it just makes sense. And also the, the whole band's aesthetic. I mean, it, it fits so perfectly with what they were doing aesthetically, like their image and everything. And, and even the, you know, the album artwork, it had, you know, it's just, I think it fit better than Killing Machine as well. I, I agree with you on that. The album artwork was so badass because I, I don't, uh, really remember any bloody covers on metal albums um at least not like this you know i I guess sabbath had some pretty ominous kind of looking stuff but uh to see this like ghostly looking dude with this metal headband and i uh sunglasses that are just shattered and stained with blood i just thought that was the coolest thing when i was a kid yeah it was it was uh it was kind of scary i thought too you know like it's, you know, at that young, impressionable age. I mean, for me at the time, I think that I, I was just starting to get into that uh, that realm of heavy metal music. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd already been familiar with Sabbath and Zeppelin. And uh, Sabbath was definitely a uh, an eye-opener for me. And uh, Priest being somewhat more aggressive in their approach. You know, they're faster. You know, they had mm-hmm. more, more like the riffs, like were like, uh, like Sabbath was like being encased in concrete and descending, being thrown into like the bottom of a lake, sort of. You know what I mean? And Judas Priest was more like getting beat with like a chain or something. So there was like <laughs> two, two types of uh, potential danger associated with both bands, and the the violence that was to be done to you was different. You know, Priest was more of like an aggressive staccato kind of like punctuation and like i said very sharp yeah very sharp exactly yeah very i always thought that uh you know when thrash came along that it was this perfect combination of of judas priest style uh riffing and 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 uh this incisive approach to music mixed with like a motorhead or or even hardcore and uh, i I loved it about about that because it it, uh priest was such a you know I mean, you could say razor edged, but you know, that brings up that British steel cover, but I really think it's uh appropriate. They they just they were so tight and everything about them was was jagged and sharp. Yeah, I mean that's uh you know, they I think that you know, Thrash for sure owes a lot to uh, to Judas Priest, you know, and and once again it's that long reach. You know, I feel like Priest was a direct influence on New Wave of British heavy metal and then Thrash particularly Metallica and like early Slayer was very heavily influenced by new wave of British heavy metal. And so there you go. It's like the commutative property in mathematics where A equals B and B equals C then A equals C. You know what I mean? Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, do you got any, any uh, favorite tracks on this record or, or are they all like celebrated equally? No, I mean, I think, uh, 
there are four four kind of standout tracks for me uh delivering the goods rock forever hellbent for leather and and evening star is really the first four tracks and maybe it's because those are the ones i was listening to the most because i was a you know album and you'd have to flip it over to listen to the side too um but they were just some some really strong songs that all had their own vibe like hellbent for leather was was really to me it was almost like that was the precedent that the the uh Proceder of this proceder is that a word precedent precedent yeah yeah well it led to it, it was the thrashiest <laughs> thing on the album it was really heavy and it was pretty brutal and the motorcycles it began the song was revving sound that's just just kind of explosive and then uh, evening star is this kind of soaring uh, rock anthem um and rock forever is also a little heavier but it's got that uh it's, it's got that same kind of melodicism uh, well, one thing about this album, I think, is they went in a much more direct um, place with it. They, it wasn't progressive. It wasn't complex. The riffs were all pretty straightforward, and uh, it was very in-your-face in that way. Yeah, definitely. It was you know, way more aggressive than some of the earlier stuff. And what comes to mind, while you were talking about that, I think of the record Sin After Sin, which is one of their earlier records. And you know, there was Last Rose of Summer on that record, and a song like that would definitely not be on Hellbent for Leather, I think. Right, right. And uh, I think if you look at at the Priest catalog, uh, Stained Class came right before uh, Hellbent for Leather. Actually, the same year. I mean, these guys were doing like one or two records a year. It's pretty amazing. Um, Unleashed in the East was, of course, a live album, but that came out less than a year after after uh, Hellbent for Leather. But if you look at Stained Class, you can kind of trace a path from that straight to Killing Machine or Hellbent for Leather. And then you can also kind of, if it wasn't for Killing Machine, I don't think uh, uh, British Steel would have come out the same way. Yeah, I think I agree with that because like this, that this um, British Steel took this and kind of you know kept moving forward with that idea. Yeah, that anthemic, melodic, uh, lighter in the air. For me, a standout track is uh, "Running Wild." I um, that song is like this kind of. It almost has like a, you know, the, the lyrical. If what's the point of living if you're if you ain't running wild? And uh, that song hit me at exactly the right point of my uh, youthful life. I guess um, I kind of took it to heart. I think the lyrics in this Judas Priest song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just it was kind of like this anthemic ode to um derelict behavior i guess you know right so <laughs> was that the german band called running wild i think took their name after that right yeah yeah i mean it makes sense i don't know if that's true but i i could imagine them being influenced by this by judas priest yeah yeah they also had a couple of good uh almost ballads like uh i guess uh what would it be uh, before the dawn yeah kind of kind of has a nice uh power ballad sound and uh take on the world is more i guess more a real rock anthem it's not uh a ballad but it's got that kind of quiet riot def leppardy feel yeah now a question that always arises with me because this is like they're you know they're they're going heavily heavily into the leather look and you know as as we all know you know just uh rob halford is is a gay 
And at the time, when I was a young man, I had no idea, obviously. You know, there's, you're not exposed to that sort of stuff out in the suburbs where I grew up. And uh, was there, um, like, do you think there was like this kind of angle with doing that, with like Rob trying to express that side of his personality and his sexuality, like in sort of subversively uh, put forth uh, some of the trappings of gay culture? Well, I think it's it's an interesting point that you raise, yeah. but I, I think he was very much in the closet at that yeah. point. Uh, people in the band circle knew knew that he was gay, but it was a tightly guarded secret. There were even photos of him with his arms draped around, uh, you know, like uh, pinups and 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 uh, celebrity models. So they they you know really went a long way to 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 uh, keep him away from that leather boy image. And yet he brought the leather boy image to the band, which is pretty funny. Um, he told me once that uh, when, when they were trying to come up with a, a look for the band uh, and he thought the leather thing would go, go really well, he was, he was with some of his friends and they were actually in a bondage shop. And uh, he was looking around at the various uh, whips and, and uh, outfits that they had, the accoutrement. And that's how he, he picked up the whip that he started using on stage as well, uh, and, you know, as, as some of these outfits, which really stem from bondage culture. Absolutely. And that, and that was the thing because it's like, you know, when you first check it out, it's like, okay, there's motorcycles, you know, there's like this kind of biker thing going on, you know, and, but the riding crop, the whip, that, that was like a little bit different. You know what I mean? That was like a different sort of vibe on the biker look. And, you know, right. I, but he was also, yeah, but he was also super theatrical. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if it was the motorcycle or the, or the one before. But he had a uh, prop machine gun, which looked like a you know serious uh, Uzi, and uh, would take it out and uh, run across the stage and fire it into the crowd and and really freak some people out. Eventually, he was forced to stop using it because <laughs> it looked like the real thing. Um, so he he was always into you know this really theatrical presentation, and I think he became a lot of the characters in his songs. Shortly after I, I got into Judas Priest, I saw uh, the movie Cruising, okay? And uh, at a young age, even though he was in the closet, there was this idea in my head after seeing Cruising and being a fan of Judas Priest and seeing all these dudes dressed in leather and thinking in my young, confused mind, like, these guys look like bikers, but they also look like dudes that are into heavy metal. And I think that the idea had crossed my mind that something, there is some element about this culture that, you know, I mean, the gay culture has always influenced straight culture in a lot of ways, you know what I mean? And, and sometimes like uh, subconsciously, you know, so years later when Rob came out of the closet, it, it all kind of made sense to me in a way. And oh, sure. Yeah. With, with songs like Eat Me Alive. Like yeah. suddenly. Some, Jawbreaker. Oh. Jawbreaker. <laughs> yeah, apparently yeah, that's about, but, you know. No, I get it. I get it. But what, I, what I'm wondering is, and I never really thought of this before. I never saw a priest as a band that influenced gay culture. And I don't know if they had a big gay following. It never. Uh, it probably never, not. It, 
Probably not. Yeah. I mean, I imagine yeah. like, cause like at the, you know, in the eighties or late seventies, it's like, yeah, as much as I love heavy metal, you got to admit, you know, there, there's like a, a certain common denominator, especially in that era of oh, closed mindedness, homophobia, you know, misogyny, misogyny even like all yeah. this other stuff that would have alienated a lot of people and just out of pure safety probably wouldn't have been inviting to people that, you know, gay people and people, even people of color at that point, you know? Right. Right. And, uh, I, you know, of course there's heavy metal parking lot, you know, I'm sure you've seen that. And that's, <laughs> yeah. like, they talk about, you know, these women who like want to jump Rob Halford's bones. And then there's like the cut to the future where Rob's like commenting on that. I just thought that was like really funny. And yeah. And also just like thinking back to that era, like how, how, sad it was that you know you had people had to remain like in the shadows a lot of with their with their uh sexuality and that as much as these days as everyone is like very sensitive about stuff you have to admit that there has been some progress in the last 30 to 40 years you know with with people being accepting of, of other lifestyles and all that oh tremendously yeah i mean you know right now uh, Ellen is an absolute icon, and and we've got a presidential candidate who's gotten farther than whoever could have imagined, and very openly, you know, gay mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and and extremely intelligent, and who knows, you know, how how far he's going to get in the race, but the, the just to see that that he's been able to get that far, just says so much about about the 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 acceptance of gay culture, and there's still a lot of homophobia out there, no no question, but. Uh, it's it's uh kind of kind of cool but you know at the time like when priest was was uh totally in their prime and and i you know i was a a young confused man um had no idea they were gay and uh i gotta admit man metal wasn't so open to gay culture and i really didn't know that much about gay culture so it's not like I was homophobic, but it was just something that was this this unknown thing that seemed very foreign. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't you know there it was I grew up in a probably similar like out in the suburbs, but it was like if I hadn't seen cruising, I think that was like kind of there was like a couple of key films that I saw when I was very young, and that was like you know I actually had I had two family members that were gay too, and at the time I wasn't quite aware of that. And what seeing cruising, applying that knowledge to other, you know, to family stuff that was going on. And then also having viewing uh, Judas Priest through that lens. There was something, uh, you know, it was like one of those deals where it's like, I'm like, could Judas Priest, could you know, there be some connection here? And then hmm. just dismissing it just because it didn't make any sense in reality to me that the you know heavy metal i was associated that with like you know this macho image and ironically in in la in the 80s heavy metal which was like a very macho thing was being uh you know produced by guys straight up dressing like women so right there's always been a little bit of that mis you know sort of um androgyny i guess that has been part of like hard rock and heavy metal, even, you know, even Alice Cooper, the like glam and all this other stuff. So it oh, really, yeah, it really sure. isn't that much of a reach really, in my opinion, you know? Yeah. Except, except metal is so much about macho strength, um, you know, building up this wall that, uh, 
it was almost like you had this fortress and you had all these people who were your metal heads and they were on your team and it was you against the world. And even priest gets that idea across. I think Yeah. they, they, you know, it's a very much you are, if you're with us, then, you know, you have, you have uh, community. And that's one of the things I always loved about metal. I think it's very much more inclusive than, than some other forms of music. And it, it's almost like if you're, uh, not this totally macho dude or you're not you know scoring chicks everywhere or you're not uh you know whatever if you have these things you perceive as deficiencies embracing metal is a way to to almost uh give yourself this this self-empowerment yeah yeah definitely now as far as uh where rob halford fits into the the pantheon of great heavy metal singers I have to say that depending on what day of the week we're talking about, it's either Halford or Ronnie James Dio for me that that top the uh, the, the the stack of uh, of great heavy metal singers. Yeah, I I'm with you. It's uh, it's you know Halford. I think uh, for sure Dio uh, Dickinson. You know uh, Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden had uh, still has a hell of a voice, and Jeff Tate I always thought was a great singer. Oh, um, yeah. from Queensryche, uh, maybe a little high pitched, um, but, uh, that was the thing then, you know, like when I, when I wanted to be in a band, I, I wanted to sing and I thought, man, I can't, I can't sing a high tenor. There's no way I can hit those notes. I can't be in a band, you know, cause <laughs> all those bands in the eighties were, uh, were hitting these, these, these crazy ass notes. Yeah. That was definitely the, the sound from that era. That's why Ozzy, I think, was like such like a weird. I mean, he had kind of a high voice, but you could tell that was definitely out of like his register. You know what I mean? When he was playing, he was singing high. Yeah, it was like yeah. unnatural and, and he had for the, him. It was a nasal voice too. Like it didn't, you know, it wasn't this trained vibrato laden uh, voice of of uh, that kind of operatic metal school. It was. I mean, of course, there was he, he predated metal, but. Uh, it's funny how his voice became such a uh, iconic part of of Sabbath. I mean, Dio was great in Sabbath, but you really think of Ozzy as the voice of Sabbath, and uh, and the dude doesn't have one of the best voices in metal for sure. Oh, definitely not, especially live. Like if you if you've seen Ozzy live, it's like pretty pretty bad really i mean it's painful yeah it's yeah you know it, it's uh that's not you know you don't go to see ozzy to see his technical abilities you know what i mean right no it's true that's true but uh it's also interesting i was interviewing uh halford once and you know not to over uh overdo this this whole idea of, of him him being gay and in the band and what that meant but uh he became he drank so much and uh, was using a lot of uh, a lot of cocaine for a time because he felt so alienated from from this metal culture and uh, you know his bandmates would go out and after gigs and uh, hook up with chicks or or you know whatever and uh, he'd often go back to the hotel by himself and uh, just drink he told me and it was like really kind of sad it I mean sad. he said. He said he'd go back with a a stag mag, and uh, you know some lube, and be by himself. And I'm like, wow, like you know the god of metal, 
that's and, and you know to to admit that to have said that is like pretty ballsy too and uh yeah you, you just feel badly because it's like you know it uh it exemplifies the whole era really and you wonder if he would have been such a you know life-threatened alcoholic had he not had to live his double life but i guess yeah. they were all going i'm sorry yeah that's 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 an interesting point man i didn't realize it was as dark you know i figured that somewhere along the line they'd figure it out where you know he'd be able to hang out with some guys you know some somewhere you know in some cities but i guess yeah, I'm sure um, there was some of that but you know no one wanted to like get that secret out there and it's that that makes it even worse i think you know right right so the uh all these all these interviews you did with Rob Halford. That's uh, it's in one of your books, right? Yeah, um, I, I interviewed all the members of of Priest for uh, my first book, Louder Than Hell, and uh, that's an oral history of metal from the '60s to the present day. And in, there's an awful lot of Priest in there, all about from their formation all the way through the uh, more modern era and Halford leaving the band and then coming back and. The lawsuit, uh, you know, over over the the, the track uh, from which a kid listened to and and, uh, and had a suicide pact with with his friend and parents sued, and that was of course a big thing in the eighties. Um, but I've I've uh, had a great relationship with that band over the years, which has been really cool. Uh, I've got to interview them a bunch of times, and you know, it was really great that Rob and Glenn agreed to talk to me for Raising Hell, also, because yeah. um, you know it, they could have easily said. Yeah, it's sort of a book about crazy times and anecdotes, and we're just, you know, thanks, but we'll turn you down. But they they did it, and they were happy to do it, and they told some funny shit stories. Yeah, that book's really cool, man. I, I uh, since I've read, you know, the entire thing, you know, par- partially in preparation for the, uh, you know, the other episode you did earlier this year, and secondly, I got a chance to actually have like a copy of the book from when we did the event together. And once again, thank you very much for giving that to me. I appreciate it. No, of course. So you, you have the hardcover now, right? The hardcover, yep. Now back to Hellbound for Leather. Uh, is that your favorite Priest album? Or, or is there another record that usurps that on your, uh, your, your list of favorite Priest albums? You know, it's either, it's either that or uh, I love Defend, uh, Defenders of the Faith. And screaming for vengeance, those two, I kind of, so I kind of put this with British Steel, and then I kind of put uh, Defenders of the Faith with Screaming for Vengeance. Almost consider them like, you know, little eras. Um, but Killing Machine was the first Priest album that that uh, I really discovered that it, that turned me on to uh, all, a lot of other metal bands. Yeah, like, I think I'd heard I'd heard. Uh, uh, breaking the law and and um uh what was the other huge hit from british steel that i'm blanking on living after uh, midnight living after midnight right right yeah. i'd heard them on the radio and i thought they were really cool but i didn't have british steel at the time and then i was exposed to hellbent for leather in its entirety and i was like whoa so so just from a historical standpoint that that has a special place for me but uh defenders of faith i thought was such a great album um I know everyone goes with screaming, but uh, I think there were some really, really good songs, and the guitar playing is phenomenal on the Defenders. How about that you? Was, that was kind of the beginning of like what I consider to be like their modern quote unquote era, where like the production on those records had like more of like a, 
yeah, like a modern kind of almost like a very modern metal feel to it, you know. But still, they were pretty heavy. Yeah, oh yeah, you definitely know? for sure they were. I mean, I think actually they got heavier after that. If you think of like Painkiller. Oh, Painkiller is yeah, that's that's almost a thrash album. Yeah. But then I'll I'll still not forgive them for Turbo. I know everyone's like, oh, go back to it. There's some nah, really great nah, stuff nah. on it. But I still can't well, every, listen. Every every band has at least one record like that. You know what I mean? Where yeah. It's like. They, they get a little too experimental. They lose the plot for one record, but then they correct their course, you know? Right. And, you know, cool of them for trying something different. It just didn't didn't work for me, but some people do love it. Also, Point of Entry, I thought, was a record that, that I didn't connect with. And uh, Nostradamus, I guess, but that was a, uh, a very, uh, you know, experimental move that they, that they made that I guess a lot of people didn't think clicked. Yeah. Point of Entry had uh, heading heading on the highway. Is that the? Yeah, I love yeah. that song though. Yeah. Yeah, that's a cool song. But I can't think of anything else off that record actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, for me, the first Priest record I got was that Hero Hero like Greatest Hits album. And that, are you, have you seen that? I haven't. No. It's like a double LP that's like a greatest hits album. It's almost like we sold our souls for rock and roll. You know how that okay. double LP for Sabbath came out? And, you know, like when I was a kid, you know, you're like going to the record store and you're just, you go to the Judas Priest section and there's like this double LP there. So you, you get it. You know what I mean? Sure. And it, uh, and it, but that had songs on like Sin After Sin and, you know, uh, Sad Wings of Destiny, like the really early stuff. You know what I mean? It was from that era. And uh, didn't have anything off of um, Hellbent for Leather. It was all like the really old stuff. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that, like that era of the band, I always have like a soft spot because that was like the first stuff I heard by them. But when their sound got a little tougher sounding is when I, you know, it sort of dovetailed with my interest in like, you know, music that had like a little more bite to it as well, you know. Yeah, but I mean, Sad Wings is super super record i mean victim yeah. of changes what a tremendous rock uh odyssey yeah and and that goes back to what you were saying like they they had over they had this like progressive like vibe in the early days you know which i guess was kind of like you got to think about the climate of bands at that time in the early 70s you know it's like right yeah pink floyd and yes and crimson yeah you know but uh actually you were saying that you you interviewed the uh the members of the band and was halford always like the architect of the band from the beginning or was it more of like kk or glenn tipton like what what was the kind of uh in during the formation of the band like who, who were the key members um as i recall it they, they came together out of two different bands um one was actually called judas priest and then i think halford was in a band called holocaust um I think that was the name of it. And uh, then they they joined these two bands together and voted to keep the name Judas Priest and uh, went from there. Um, but Rob wasn't the original singer. I think it was, was it Al Atkins? Is that the guy's name? I, I have no idea. <laughs> Pretty sure it was, it, it, it was Al Atkins. Um, and then uh, that was was working pretty well but uh, as the story goes um rob was friends with uh i believe it was i could have this wrong it's it's in louder than hell so i should remember but it was one of the one of the members 
uh, sisters. I think it was uh, it was either KK, I think, or Glenn. I think it was Glenn's sister. And uh, so he was he was hanging out with Glenn's sister, and uh, they were looking for a singer. And Rob was just singing to himself as he was like climbing down the stairs or you know, skipping down the stairs. I don't want to say skipping. He was you know <laughs> kind of running down the stairs, whatever. But so he's singing to himself. And Glenn's like, whoa, you can sing, man. And um, then they kind of, you know, went from there and, and uh, he became the voice of the band. But all of the songwriting really was was uh, KK and, and Glenn in the early days. Um, and then Rob would do vocal melodies and, and, and the vocals. And I guess they really kind of had that formula up until KK left the band, right? It seems like they would. I always think of KK Downing and Glenn Tipton like as like a team, you know. Yeah. It's it's great that they've been able to continue, you know, after KK left and I think Richie's really good with the band. Um but it's not that original team, you know, that that, that was something about the twin guitar sound that the two of them created that yeah, it was as as iconic in metal that that uh, dual leads as like you know, Thin Lizzy or Skinner or, or any of these other rock bands that were having guitar uh, harmonies going, um, and then Maiden, you know, took it and went with it and did their guitar harmonies too. I always think of Priest and Maiden as both being the bands that uh, that would play like in fifths um, and do these really cool parts with two two guitars. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, they kind of made the blueprint for like you know. I mean, every even even to this day like the two guitar you know like even you know bands like like you know morbid angel and like you know cannibal corpse and all that sort of stuff you think they have like their they're like the legacy of those bands i think you know for a lot of bands i think it uh it came down to maintaining a rhythm sound while you had a solo going so you weren't just yeah. hearing the bass and the guitar but the really the really great bands could uh, could pull off the dual uh dual solos you know, um, although I guess Metallica and that, like Hetfield never solos. He plays all the arpeggio parts, but uh, Kirk has always been that uh, kind of flyaway lead guy. But like Slayer had the dual solos. So I wouldn't call those guys like, you know, shredder expertise. Uh, but God, what, there's no band that sold like Slayer. <laughs> yeah, well, well, what comes to mind more with the dual guitar playing at Slayer, though, is like the, uh, you know, the harmonies. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah in the songwriting and that that's mm -hmm. like when i think when i think of um a priest in iron maiden i think about how there's like the harmonies that come into play and how that was like such a heavy influence on bands that came later and are still influencing bands like that might not even necessarily sound like judas priest but they that idea of having two guitar players and one guy playing a harmony you know, is definitely a, a departure from there being the rhythm guitar player and the lead guitar player. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, there's, I think I saw something recently about a KK Downing led bands featuring ex members of Judas Priest. I saw something about him, him forming a new band. I, uh, I didn't see who's, who's in it with him. Uh, I know, un unfortunately, he and Priest had uh, acrimonious, yeah. uh, uh, you know, end, and then it only got worse after KK did his uh, his his memoir. Um, I don't know why, because I, I read it and it really didn't have anything that that outrageous in it that I recall. But 
there was yeah that was that was a bad bad split um and I, I can't really see him playing with them again um but now really you only have uh you know richie uh is there is their lead guitarist like sadly glenn is not really going to be able to 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 play the lead role with the with the, the band anymore uh, he comes in and now and again at live shows and and does uh you know the classics uh living after midnight and and uh breaking the law and, and whatever but um i wonder if priest is going to die do they have another album in their in their sleeve is there going to be a follow-up to firepower I'd like to, man. I'd like to see something like that, even if it's like Glenn Tipton writing it and recording in the studio, and they're and uh, not necessarily going out on tour, you know. Yeah, I think that's what we said that he was he was going to do. He was going to maintain a a role in the band, uh, a writing, and and Richie's Faulkner has developed as a songwriter as well, or you know at least as a riff writer. He's a hell of a lead guitarist too. So who knows? Hopefully, they have another great album in him. I thought Firepower was really good. I, I enjoyed it. I saw them on that tour. They were great. I, you know, I mean, Rob Halford's voice was awesome, and they sounded awesome. And it was just a fun evening of. Uh... Actually, Saxon was on that tour. The leg that I saw, which was pretty cool. Oh, cool! Yeah, I saw Saxon. I probably went to. Did they play? Uh, they didn't play the Prudential Center, did they? I actually saw them at Mohican Sun up in uh, Connecticut. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a good friend of mine lives up there, and uh, that's a casino, right? Yeah, yeah, it was it's pretty cool. I've seen like some Bellator fights, and you know, I've seen a couple things up there. It's pretty cool. All right, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully, they'll you know they're they're one of the grand legends, so they'll they'll uh, be around for a while. Their fiftieth anniversary is next year, isn't it? Fifty years, man, of being in a band—that's insane. Well, yeah. Uh, it's just been 50 years of the first Sabbath record. And I think Priest's 50-year anniversary is next year. I could be wrong, but yeah, I think it is. But God, it's a long time. It sure is, man. I can't even imagine being in a band for the same band for 50 years. That's insane. Right. <laughs> well, John, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you doing this this evening. And, uh, you know, like uh, you want to give us a rundown of some of the stuff you got going on with the books? Um, just really putting the feelers out for, uh, someone else to, to, uh, work with on a, on a book. Um, I've got a, a couple of, of, uh, possibilities that are, you know, a couple irons in the fire, but I'd, I'd really love to, to land a really cool artist to work with, like, uh, who, who would, um, be well known enough to, um, interest the, the major, you know, book companies. That's always a tough one these days, um, and uh, interesting enough to to be a really compelling read. Uh, kind of like I like I love doing the ministry book just because Al Jurgensen is so freaking insane and so smart and funny that uh, it was a great uh, a great experience just just hearing all those stories and then coming home and trying to tie them into particular uh, eras and. He didn't even talk about the albums all that much. I had to like pull his hair to get him to uh, to talk at any length about about the particulars of any any record. He was more interested in talking about the drugs they were doing when he did the record. And, 
drug stories that happened while they were on the drugs when they were doing the records. But um, but that was fun. Um, you know, more than anything else, any book I do, I really I really want to wanted to have a personality and tell a story. So it's not just this, uh, you know, band meets, gets together, does whatever. Uh, I really want to get the human element of more than anything, they're, they're, they're kind of victory in the, from the jaws of defeat kind of stories. But, but those are always great. And uh, a lot of bands have them. So all your books, uh, people look you up on Amazon, John Wiederhorn. All, all of your past titles will come up. So uh, anyone out there who's interested in reading these books, go out to Amazon and uh, check out John's work. Yeah, I've also I've got a page on uh, Authory that has like a, a pretty good uh, catalog of, of everything I've done. Um, it's a this this website where you can sign up for it and they'll they'll catalog your your anything that you've written that's been on the web. Awesome. All right, man. Thanks a lot, and uh, we'll we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks so much, man. You got it. That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care.